This week on the Twin Geek Cast, we have Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, we have informed takes about Game of Thrones, and we have Hellboy and much more at the box office. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Good news is you're fired. So, you've been watching the new Game of Thrones, you're all caught up, you've seen all, what, seven, eight seasons now? Seven, eight, is it there, like, eleven seasons? I don't know, man, I don't watch television. So, you haven't been catching up with Westeros and uh, our site's big article for the week. What's what's Westeros? Is that a new direction? I don't know. Um, It's a part, well, they made a, a crossover from the Lord of the Rings, and uh, the Westeros is just another land that they built on. So it's like an extension of Rivendell? Like, so that's what, that's what Game of Thrones is. It's it's more Lord of the Rings. I'm guessing they kind of pulled all that stuff from the Cimmerillion then for, for Martin. That well, that's sense. why he, he named himself uh, George R. R. Martin. He's, uh, he's a descendant of uh, the, Tolkien, the last... Cause... Tolkien. Because he's got the yeah. R in his... Okay, that, that makes sense then. So they must share the same name. and So I, so I guess Tolkien and Martin are pen names and their real last name is the R, whatever that second R is. Right, yeah. Uh, their, la- their, their last name's second R. Um, <laughs> and uh, So you haven't seen any of the show? No. Is that right? No, you'll have to catch me up. Catch me up right now and tell me what, what happens in the show uh, as far as you've seen. I think there's a guy Bilbo, and he and he's on a search for a ring. Okay, um, that sounds familiar. I like that. I found out last night that it doesn't take place on Earth. It it well, takes place in like a mechanical land. No, it takes land, place like on, on Middle titles. Earth, right? Not Earth, Middle Earth. I know. Yeah. There's like another subsection of Earth that it takes place on. So I just found that out about the show, and I'm pretty excited about it. Finding out that it's so connected to Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to do, and. That actually kind of gets me a bit more interested, like, because, you know, me, I'm all about, um, you know, franchises. I just want to watch whatever the next part of the franchise is. So, you know, knowing that there's a connection now, I actually have a legitimate interest to go in. Like, I'm like, oh, more Lord of the Rings, yeah. I'll sign up for that instead of some made-up thing that this guy thought up who's been writing for years. You know, I don't care about that I shit. mean, it's an exciting, it's an exciting time, because this coming month we have the Tolkien uh, uh, film coming out. And then, because HBO lost the license to Lord of the Rings, we have Amazon making a new series this year. Yeah, so everyone's getting in on that, that Lord of the Rings money. You know, the whole <laughs> right. franchise there. Tolkien basically wrote all modern films, it seems like. You know, everything descends from Lord of the Rings in some way. I think so. I think it's the... As far as, like, high fantasy films, I think it's definitely, like, the impetus for any kind of uh, creative vision. And obviously, this is just a, you know... Uh, derivation of what he did. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure, well, I'm, I think it kind of goes back, if you wanted to still, every movie breaks down into, like, one of three films. Either you're remaking Citizen Kane, you're remaking Lord of the Rings, or you're remaking Mechagodzilla vs. Ghidorah. Right. <laughs> Those are the and, only I, I three mean, stories so in the that... universe. <laughs> I think it's funny that they sexualized Lord of the Rings. They just made the same story, but with a little bit more sex. I, 
well, think it's interesting that's all their show is. You know, that's what I really thought was missing from Peter Jackson's uh, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> is that I really wanted to see, like, you know, the opening with Galadriel, and she's telling the thing, she needed to be topless while she gave that speech, kind of informing everything, because I could never pay attention to all of the backstory that just spewed you in the first in, in Fellowship. I'm just like, I don't care, just get on with it, I want to see the fight. So, yeah. if I had boobs to look at, I think I would, like, take away more from that introductory scene. Like, that's really what it was missing. That's what I thought about The Hobbit. The first time I saw it, I thought it just needs a little bit more tits. And right. Then... Well, and you wouldn't even have to, you know, make the actresses do it necessarily because of all of the, the CGI that you have in the film. You couldn't get away with that in the first Lord of the Rings because it was all practical and it made sense, you know, very little actual manipulating of people there. But since there was so much CGI in The Hobbits, you might as well throw on some more and give everyone fake tits. There's this weird thing this week where, like, the girls just turned, like, 18 in the storyline so she could find a way of sex, and the internet's freaking out about it. It's kind of creeping me out. Like, I don't know if I want to be a part of this uh, Lord of the Rings spinoff anymore. No? You don't want, uh, kind of, Game of Thrones-style nudity in this? You don't want to see Gandalf's big schlong fighting off orcs? Well, I do, but, I mean, that's a little different. I hope Amazon's kind of following up on that, because that's the, that's the series I want. Yeah, I think it actually sounds really interesting, the uh, Amazon Lord of the Rings, and see what they'll do. I know they're doing, like, not the exact same story, but, you know, hopefully... Yeah, that's going to be, like, their their big thing, right? It's it's in, I don't know what they say, like, the second age, so uh, it must be a sequel. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, <laughs> we know so much about this. <laughs> I'm so very curious to know who they're going to cast, because that's going to be kind of their biggest competition. Everyone thinks about, you know, those characters from Lord of the Rings as the ones in the Jackson films. You can get to play Gandalf. You can't get anyone other than Ian McKellen. You might as well just get him uh, again. Yeah. Well, uh, will it even be based like in the same timeline that he exists in? Do we even know? I mean, Gandalf's so fucking old. I bet he's in every timeline. You know. <laughs> I, I mean, I bet he is. He's in uh, Game of Thrones. So is, is he? Uh, did they think, bring yeah. Ian McKellen back for Game of Thrones too? Of course they did, man. I haven't gotten that far, but obviously. Oh well, that, I'm sure it was a nice surprise. It must have been like a. Very kind of fanboy kind of thing, but you know, very fulfillment. Like seeing Yoda in Last Jedi, I guess that is kind of the equivalent. Right. There is uh, Gandalf popping up in in Westeros, and they have all the the little people who are Yoda like illusions in in Game of Thrones, which I think is a nice send up of uh, you know, it's also like a crossover with. So so hold on, uh, you're Yoda's telling me story. you're telling me that that Star Wars is also a part of Game of Thrones. I mean, it's a wide open universe. Anything's possible. That makes sense because I remember that. Max von Sydow is in Game of Thrones for some bit, and I know he was in like the the first uh, Force Awakens Star Wars. Is he playing the same character then? That would make yeah, sense. Yeah, of course he is. Yeah, of course. Duh. <laughs> so it's a it's a linking of all of them there. So we're so Game of Thrones is nobody told me this. Why didn't nobody tell me that Game of Thrones is a link between the two largest blockbuster franchises ever made? I would have got on board I way mean, earlier. It should have been obvious based on how big this thing is. I I thought you'd just know. Well, I guess I thought everyone just thought I knew. I feel like a, a fucking idiot over here for not getting on board earlier. And it's how it's almost ending. Is is the Emperor also going to pop up in the end here? Is that the big bad guy of this last season? I can't spoil anything, but yes. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm very excited now. I'm going to have to renew my HBO subscription and, and start checking this out. I, dude, I'm not going to have time to podcast anymore because I'm going to be busy catching up on my Lord of the Rings Star Wars crossover series. It's alright, we'll just start every week's podcast with a Game of Thrones recaps, because this has gone so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I guess in the meantime, since I don't, I don't have time to get to it yet, why don't we uh, look at the box office at least? I'm very right, excited. let's talk but... about real movies. 
Yes, and then we'll get back to this. All right. So, starting out here at number 10, uh, we have Hellboy, the new Hellboy movie, which you... Uh, I was here last week, but didn't do too well, but it's hanging on just a little bit here. Yeah, it's had a huge drop-off, 67% off. Um, I went and saw it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think uh, your takeaway was less negative than everyone else's. I think it was. I think I came out mostly positive on it. I nearly gave it the same rating as the first Hellboy, which surprised me. Yeah, I, I do have to uh, say, You though, know that... Uh, you know that wrestling scene in, uh, what was it, Spider-Man or Spider-Man 2? The first Spider-Man, that's where he kind of uh, introduced himself. The, the human spider, he calls himself there. With, where, where he fights uh, uh, yeah, uh, Macho Man. It basically starts with that scene, and it's just like a complete callback to that. But um, I think it works well because it's in like a luchador setting, so it's a little throwback to you know GDT's sort of Mexican heritage. And um, there's, a, there's a lot more style to it. It's a lot darker. Uh, Hellboy is kind of a force in this, uh, but he can't really act through his prosthetics like you were saying. Yeah, that's what the, all the trailers looked like, is that he looked like he was stuck in the same face, which, you know, uh, it's not, you don't think about how tough prosthetics are when you look at something like, you know, Ron Perlman as Hellboy, because they don't use that much to obscure his face, they really use his natural shape, whereas here in the trailers you could definitely tell that, like, you, you wouldn't know who that is by looking at them. <laughs> No, you wouldn't. Um, and the way that he moves, uh, you could see that, you know, it's just like sort of mouth part moving. It's not like his face emotes with it. Uh, Which so is he has bad. Like a, he it's... has like a moving mouth and eyes. <laughs> That's it. I don't think people realize how important the face is for acting especially eyes like that's where all of your yeah. acting comes from is in your eyes so when you entirely obscure that you have nothing uh, occasionally it does get up to what I was hoping for from Hellboy in the first place which is kind of like a heavy metal um, uh, you know I feel like Captain Marvel had as its final climactic site just a girl but this one has kickstart your heart and what can I say I'm a sucker for that kind of 80s metal oh i like that i gotta say whenever you know like the right track at the right time to use it works otherwise it sometimes comes off force i think the best one in recent memory is in uh ragnarok when they when they bring out immigrant song twice and that works perfect yeah i love i felt like that was i i felt like they made the movie because they had the song in that case Mm -hmm. for sure both instances there I, I i remember in the theater i didn't expect it the second time but i was i was super hyped up again when it started uh, and also you just can't beat led zeppelin no um led zeppelin's hard to beat and uh, this it's fine i i would recommend it i guess on video on demand i don't think you need to go out to theater i like hellboy i didn't expect to yeah well i don't know if we'll get a sequel out of it necessarily because no, no. Done, unfortunately <laughs> it's, but I I mean both the originals did horribly too, right in theater. But yeah, uh, those were more badly timed. I guess this is too coming up against Avengers. So right. We'll, see. well uh, it's not going to stick around even to get to Avengers here. So yeah, we should say out of uh, you know Easter box offices are usually pretty good. Um, but this one's a big downer. Uh, one of the worst in the last twenty or so years. So. Yeah, especially since I think this next entry would have been. Pretty perfect for Easter weekend here, but it's just kind of I think so. Yeah, number nine here is a missing link. You know, family film. We talked about it briefly last week. Thirty uh, percent drop off is almost none, though. So I feel like at the same time, it you know it kind of elevated a bit with the Easter audience. Thank God. But uh, hopefully, it stays around one more week. I I don't have high hopes, but well, we'll see. sitting at number nine, I I got a bad feeling it's going to drop off bad, which is 
which is not yeah. good, especially for a film that's uh, kind of close to us here. You know, I think we mentioned it last week as well. Is that like studios? They're they're literally like right in my backyard. You know, they're like an hour. You know what I have to me. say though? If you're if you're taking your kids to Avengers this week, I I want you know maybe they're a little too young for that. Maybe put them in the next theater with Missing Link. I, I think they'll have a good time, and they could watch it twice for your yeah. Avengers run times. <laughs> I mean, That's Avengers excellent. so damn long. You know, you can probably get in an extra showing during just the the post credit scenes alone. Yeah, you could uh, put them in that, then they could go to Disney Penguins, which, by the way, I took my daughter to. That was her first movie in theater. Oh, it's this sweet. I saw some pictures of it. You said she didn't stay all the, the whole time, though. Uh, we stayed about 40 minutes till she started making penguin noises at the group <laughs> next to us. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was sweet, man. She she brought her little stuffed penguin and sat it in the seat next to her and uh, had her watch it, uh, with a, gave it her milk. Mm-hmm. She was so sweet about it. That's adorable. And it sounds like a. Uh, I don't. I don't know. It didn't do good either. It's at twelve in the box office with, what almost two million. That's horrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know how much they spend on it, but these aren't kind of usually the films that crack the box office. No, so. I think it's a bad open for a Disney nature doc, but uh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. It's not like Disney doesn't have plenty of other cash cows here. Yeah, absolutely. Before They're that, not hurting this month. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> for that, uh, moving on here, eight uh, number eight here we have us. Still hanging in there, making plenty of money for Jordan Peele. Yeah, nothing left to say about it. I yeah. like it, but I've cooled off on it a little bit. Yep. I, I did not like it initially, and still don't, but you can hear our, our debate about it in our podcast we did a couple weeks back now. I think it's an interesting conversation we had. I like uh, having divisive discussions about films. Yeah, maybe maybe cue that one up after this one. It's yeah. a good listen. Say so. Uh, number seven here we have Pet Cemetery remake, thirty years after the original one from Mary Lambert. We had our um, Jesse read a review for that because he was he's very knowledgeable in the ways of horror and Pet Cemetery Cemetery in particular is a close story to him. And we're both reading it, but uh, haven't gotten through it yet. Uh, are we thinking podcast afterwards, or what are we doing? Maybe. I mean, I might. Uh, maybe when it hits like on Blu-ray, I'll get a chance to go around and see it. Uh, I've got like a hundred pages left in the book. Usually, you know what I, you know, I read it at night with my fiance, and I just, uh, I fall asleep like two pages in once she starts reading. So, it, I've been doing the one progress. by, uh, I've been doing the Michael C. Hall, and he puts me asleep also. So mm-hmm. well, <laughs> that's a different thing. Well, you listen to it in the car though, so I hope you're not sleeping yeah. when that happens. I mean, I do listen to it at the car at night whenever, whenever I need to see Dexter uh, <laughs> uh, reading me a story, which is uh, creepy and satisfying. Well, that sounds like a good. Uh, you know, label for Pet Cemetery in general. Yeah, I, I hope the movie's good. Uh, I don't have high hopes after Jesse's review. Yeah, well, and just general reviews about it as well. Pet Cemetery seems to be a difficult story to adapt because it's very much so kind of about the atmosphere. Like, there are long stretches of the book reading where I'm like, I don't think you could put this on a screen. It's, no. it's very much in the in the character's headspace for a majority of it, and it doesn't translate well to action. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. And I think that was the struggle of the first one. Is King tried to adapt it himself, and it was too close to the material anyway. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I definitely have to go back and rewatch the original and see. I know you. You definitely did not have a good time with it, but I don't think it's horrible. I just think I think it's like a pretty me- mediocre horror film. Um, that feels like it should be a book. Yeah, and it is. It's a good book so far. 
um, you know, I definitely look forward to finishing it up here, and hopefully we'll, we'll definitely be able to talk about it later once we both finally get around to finishing it. We'll get to it eventually. Probably not while it's still in box office. No, probably we'll get not. To it. In the meantime, uh, number six here, we have Dumbo, another remake, sort of remake anyway. <laughs> And uh, they announced last night that uh, um, Dumbo will be edited on Disney+. Plus. Yes, the original Dumbo, I saw that uh, the article mentioned that Dumbo, you know, it's going to have all the, the racist crow scenes taken out, and they're not going to put up Song of the South either. Which we kind of all are in general consensus here that Disney is, is doing the wrong thing in this case, trying to preserve their I think their they image. should take the old Warner Brothers tact of, like, put up a little disclaimer saying, like, a, you know... Uh, covering this up would be the same as saying these old beliefs didn't exist. It's it's you can't just erase your own history. Yeah, it's kind of slimy that approach to it. You know, Disney's so concerned with their their image here, but you know, in these cases, I think they really need to address it, especially with something like Dumbo, for which what I recall yeah. correctly, like there are major plot points that happen in those crow sequences. It's Well, the crow is what teaches him to fly in the original one. Yeah, so how are you going to cut that out? <laughs> yeah, I know. it's You'd have to make a whole new sequence. The way they do it in this new movie is that the kids teach him how to fly, but uh, those kids aren't in that original movie, so I don't know what you do. Uh, I, I think what they probably should just do, if they're going to cut anything, just leave the pink elephant sequence and just upload that and call it the movie. Because that's just the only thing anyone remembers. <laughs> Maybe just don't upload Dumbo and Song of the Self. That way we don't have to have this conversation. Even then, again, it's still kind of a racing art. And, you know, you don't want to lose something like, like Dumbo necessarily. It's very influential and important. But it's better than butchering it, I guess. Yeah, I got it on DVD here. I don't care. So I, I, I think it sucks they're doing it. Yeah, certainly. And it's a shame. And we don't like that, that Disney is trying to erase things. It's bad and... We already have Bad enough. Disney. Yeah, we already have enough uh, erasure of you know culture here. Let's, let's stop trying to do this with these important um, pieces. Speaking of er- erasure at culture, uh, what? <laughs> we have little at number five. <laughs> Wait, I don't know where you're going with that. Um, He's trying. The, the the straws are in front of you, but you can't quite grasp them. There's a there's a girl, and she. She wants to be an adult. Have you ever seen Big? <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. There you found the transition. It's, it's reverse Big, like we said last week, and not at all anything to do with culture erasure, unless you're insinuating that it's erasing Big. I do not know. Where you're so there's like that. this, uh, there's this kid on the film, and she wanted to produce a movie, and she kind of got an opportunity to work with the studio to get her movie made, but then it was uh, actually produced by adults, so that's little, and it doesn't look great. Is that, is that what the actual backstory is? Oh, no. I mean, that's like the backstory of like how the movie got made, right? But right. But not the, not the film itself. Well, that would also be an interesting film, I think. It's, it's kind of similar, I suppose. I don't know. It's the same story. Kind of kid has a thing and becomes an adult. I don't know. We, we obviously don't have much to... We obviously don't have much to say about the film <laughs> itself. No. <laughs> I think we should erase it from the box office. There we go. <laughs> we'll be hypocrites, all right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what else do we have? Number four, we have Captain Marvel still. No, that's the only one that actually went up. Like, that's so oh, it rare did go to up. see. <laughs> yeah, what the Cause, fuck? Because everyone's like, oh shit, I didn't go see this when it came out, and Endgame comes out this weekend. I better go catch up. Maybe it's important. Um, uh, You said you're not going to see it now. Nah, I don't know. I'm very burnt out with, with Marvel, and this one 
just did not have much to interest me to begin with. Like, I think the only thing that seemed interesting to begin with was like, oh, the scrolls seem like an interesting addition because it could really shake things up, but it doesn't sound like they, they did anything to reveal anything interesting with the scrolls. Like, I was hoping for a, you know, a kind of a change in perspective of things. Like, we learned that a character this whole time has been secretly a scroll, but it doesn't sound like that was the case, and so I don't think it's that important uh, to see it. I, I think that might be the case, but... Is, is it? Nobody's told me if that's the case. They're doing a really good job of hanging on to spoilers if that's the case. Yeah, I think it is. Um, oh, okay. Well, uh, do you want to know? Well, I don't want to say yeah, it. Yeah, you don't want to spoil on podcast. Tell, tell me afterwards, and then maybe I'll okay, be interested. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we'll talk afterward to make sure I'm correct about I don't, this. I don't know <laughs> how nobody's, like, how this hasn't gotten to me on the internet yet, then, if, they're, if that's the case. Like, the movie's been out for, like, a month or so now, right? Yeah, the conversation's been weird about it. It's become about politics and not the actual movie. I think there's some stuff to the movie. I think it's a pretty average movie. I'd rather you go see Hellboy, though. I saw some commentary uh, yesterday talking about how, how it's very much kind of a vehicle for military propaganda in the same way that the first Iron Man was. <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit there for, like, Air Force, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very glorifying of, of the military, essentially. Like, oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's propaganda in the subtle way, not in the very strict, like, you know... Hey, look! It's Captain America, kind of way. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely. in the hey, look! Look I mean, how awesome fighter pilots are. Maybe you might want to be one someday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. That, that's the idea behind it, anyway, and that's that's always kind of what some and, and movies have done that for a while. I mean, think about Top Gun. That's all Top Gun is. It's just a giant There's... ad for the Air Force. <laughs> There's a point where she lands in the blockbuster on Earth, and she's walking through the rack. She stops and looks at the shelf, and she just Did spots she the Top right Gun? stuff on there. Oh, okay. No, she sees the right stuff, and she's like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm going to do, you know? <laughs> I I have this uh, longing from my past to uh, be a fighter pilot, and here's this movie that glorifies it. I, I mean, more astronauts, but yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, but still, she makes a connection with that to her past. Yeah, all right, well... You know, blatant references aside, again, it just doesn't seem like my bag as much. I'm, I'm getting very tired of Marvel. I'm trying to work up the motivation to go see a three-hour Marvel film. <laughs> I don't know, man. Well, you should make it a double feature, make it a six-hour day. Yeah. I don't know if I'm ready to do that necessarily, but... It's okay. They don't want uh, white male critics anyway. So. <laughs> anyway, uh, number three here we have uh, is the, the newest... Disney Fox film, the first one with their from, name on the banner. From Pure Flix, right? No, it's, no, this one's not Pure Flix, I don't think. Uh, but yeah. it, it uh, sounds it's, like it's it. It's the first Fox film put out by Disney, is it? Yeah, it's, it's called Breakthrough at number three. And it it's speaking of propaganda. <laughs> yeah. I think it's weird that it's the first one that Disney's on. It is a very odd one, for sure. Um... I don't know a whole lot about it, but it seems like a very heavy Christian message here, which is which is okay if you want to make a movie about that, but it definitely see, looks like it's not as unbiased as you might like. The ratings aren't too good for it. Uh, you got Topher Grace would here. Would you say it had a Topher Grace in it? Yeah, uh, yeah, Topher Grace here. I said earlier like when we were getting on that this must be his repentance for playing a you know white supremacist and black Klansman. <laughs> It sounds like it's a inspiring story that they had to turn into a movie, and you know that you could only do so many of those a year. Is it? It's not based on a true story, right? 
I the, think it may be. I don't know, because the, the premise sounds a, a little... I don't know, I guess based on maybe my mind went with it, but it sounds more fanciful. Uh, when a 14, what's the, when a what's four, the premise? When a 14-year-old son drowns in a lake, a faithful mother prays for him to come back from the brink of death and be healed. It's almost certainly like a true story, like funded by like religious people, right? Yeah, and I mean, of course, you're not going to hear any mention of you know, oh, you know, the science of the do- scientists or the doctors, you know, helped bring him back. It's all God. God <laughs> definitely did this, and nobody else had anything to do with it. Right. Um, it's yeah. Uh, it, you can't. It's okay to credit science. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't want to spend too long on it. It's made more money than I like the, these kind the- of things too. The miraculous true story of a mother's faith and her child's re- resurrection. All right, that's cool. Yeah, Whatever. whoopee. Hey, how about this other one about a kid getting resurrected? Shazam! Um, Shazam? Shazam's number two. <laughs> I yeah. feel like you summoned him. Um, I, I don't know much about Shazam yet. I don't know if I want to see it. I'll see it on Video On Demand. Bro has a great review on the site. Yeah. Shazam seems like the most interesting superhero movie to come out in a long time, and that doesn't. Necess- I know, and it's the only one I'm not seeing, so I don't know what's up with that. It, I mean, it's, when we mentioned kind of last week, like we got two big related films here, Shazam being the the obvious or one, you know, but you know with superhero instead, which seems interesting, and I've heard nothing but great things about it. Yeah, I think it sounds cool, and it's uh, it's on the trend with found family. Instead of just being like a normal family film, uh, it's the family you find that's most important in films today. Yeah. I think uh, I'm glad to see it's still doing well and Warner Brothers is making the right turn, you know, for their uh, DC Universe here. And it'll probably stay around in the box office for a while. You know, it's only two now. I didn't even know what, what Shazam was about. I thought like last year we were looking at like a slate of uh, superhero films that would do really badly because I didn't think Aquaman had anything, and I thought uh, Shazam was nothing. And I didn't really know who Captain Marvel was, so it's well, been think, a surprising year. I think it's actually kind of funny. We haven't mentioned this yet before, but Shazam, the character's original name was Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. Yeah, and that's what it was when he, they, DC originally launched the character, but then you know a lawsuit incurred with Marvel's brand name, so they they had to change the character name. And that's when they put in Captain Marvel. You know their own. Marvel's Captain Marvel. Yeah, I think it was even like a thing when they acquired the rights from like a small company that they had to change the name because of that. Yeah. And then there was Marvel that was created after that or something weird. So it's kind of, uh, you know, coincidental here that we have the original Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel in the box office at the same time. I'm sure there's there's no coincidences in big <laughs> business. You know what I mean? Yeah, like like they saw that Marvel's planning Captain Marvel. Like, well, shit, we better pull out Shazam then. <laughs> Let's get this movie finished and release it when they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's doing good. It, it's 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 made money, right? Like a yeah, we're at a hundred twenty million now. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Uh, I don't know. I'm not watching the big numbers here. Oh yeah, I see it there. One twenty. That's good. It's not quite as much as Captain Marvel, but no. Um, but Captain Marvel's uh, also beat all the records for. Uh, Batman, so uh, mm-hmm. DC doesn't have a lot of hope at beating that right now. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully they'll keep moving in the right direction. I don't, I don't know what they have lined up next. I think it's Suicide Squad too, but is it what? What stakes for? Uh, I, I guess Joker's coming. Oh so. yeah, that's right, Joker. But it's not really related to the the universe here necessarily. 
No, thank God. I feel like they are trying to break out of the universe here, too. Yeah, they might be moving on from it. I think... I don't know. I guess we'll see where it goes. I, I, I don't see any further plans from them to expand on a universe or make another team-up movie or anything. I think they're ready to, to stop, which might be the best play. I think, especially with the end of Marvel here, we're all getting kind of tired of cinematic universes. I think even the plan for Marvel fans is kind of like, okay, I just kind of want to be done with the universe. I feel like I've done enough of this, and, you know, I've I've really invested a lot in these films, about 23 of them now. I, I'm kind of done. Yeah. I think people are ready to move on to uh, standalone films again. I'm I'm certainly done. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to stop it. Like I said, I'll watch Avengers uh, eventually. I'll probably go out and, and see Spider-Man. Spider-Man. And, and I'm then, pretty much done, I think. Yeah, I, I think probably eventually, like a couple of years from now, I'll catch up on Captain Marvel just to say that I finished the series, but yeah, not anytime soon. Mm. No need. What's next? Uh, number one here, uh, we have The Curse of La Lorena, which oh, is... Yeah, I... It's, a, it's the newest uh, Conjuring is, Universe film. And I didn't know that until it came out, really. Oh, because they don't... There's no, like, obvious tie-in, necessarily. There are a lot of loosely related spooky stories that perform well at the box office, but suck critically. Yeah, I don't know very much about it. Um, I know it's based on the old uh, Mexican story about a woman who drowns her child or something. Yeah, and it, I can see it's doing well. There's a uh, very you know high uh, Latino audience you know to to be capitalized on, as we saw with two consecutive weeks of No Manches Frida two being in the box office. <laughs> they do uh, very well with Latina films before Easter for whatever reason. Um, well, I mean, uh, high high Catholic. Yeah, Faith, I don't know what. I'm sure there's a correlation, but I'm not going to try and speculate what exactly it is. Yeah, I don't want to go into it, but uh, they do well. Mm-hmm. And um, also horror, you know, obviously does really well here. So not really surprised that it's topping off at the box office here. You know, doing really well. Um. Yeah. I. I want to go see it. I. I don't know. <laughs> is this the trailer that just had like the she that came up on the screen? Uh, I don't know. You know, I'm not in theaters okay. enough to see trailers, so. <laughs> I thought we saw this before, like, um, Halloween or something. That would have been, like, ages ago. Yeah, that was months ago. I don't know. Like, more than months. I'll cut this. It's like a lifetime ago. (laughs) I'm just going to cut this whole thing. Alright, alright, cut away. Anyway, alright. So this week, uh, we were inspired to talk about uh, a film that's not as recognized as it really should be. We we love, I think, Glengarry Glen Ross here, yeah? Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. (laughs) You think I'm fucking with you? I am not fucking with you. I'm here from downtown. I'm here from Mitch and Murray. And I'm here on a mission of mercy. You call yourself a salesman, you son of a bitch? I don't gotta listen to this shit. You certainly don't, pal. Because the good news is you're fired. The bad news is you've got all you've got just one week to regain your job, starting with tonight. Starting with tonight's sit. Oh, have I got your attention now? Good. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize, a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. 
It has a great script. Um, I love a film that lives by its writing. I like uh, Graham just posted on our uh, page that a film that lives by its writing really speaks for itself. Yeah. Well, and uh, you know David Mamet, the the writer of this film and the play. You know, originally he's a super famous uh, you know Pulitzer Prize winning writer. You know. Yeah, uh, and you could tell that he has the skills of a playwright. That he has a uh, that dynamic between characters. But this is also based on some personal experience of his, right? Yeah, uh, David Mamet was, you know, he did work in this uh, environment, this, you know, sales position in the same role that, uh, you know, Kevin Spacey's character Williamson here uh, plays, where he basically managed over the uh, salesman and handed out the leads and all that and all the time. So he kind of took his collective memories from there and compiled it into this, you know, event here and this idea with Glengarry Glen Ross. You could tell that all the characters read true in a way that they've been inspired by uh, real experiences of the author. Well, one thing um, I really... It's... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, one thing I really uh, appreciate and respect about the film is the, the feeling of authenticity. You're really just thrown into this world, and it's up to you to kind of decipher everything. There's a lot of jargon and doublespeak and everything thrown in, and you mm. know the movie doesn't stop to explain anything to you. It just expects you to keep up and you know figure out what's going on as a, you know you go along and it's all there to figure out it's not terribly difficult but it goes by so fast like i wouldn't blame anyone if they're like what the hell just happened yeah the jargon has its own rhythm and cadence and you know there's uh, there's points where the characters just go on streaks of talking and you feel like you're being manipulated into some um new belief or they're always looking for ways to take care of a uh, customer need but in a way that manipulates them and kind of deflates themselves in the process. It kind of feels very uh, Sorkin that way, I think. You know, a lot of yeah. the, the dialogue there and the fast pace of it and everything. You know, it, it reminds me a lot of that. You know, Sorkin also being a prolific playwright. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is it is that kind of fast-talking, uh, smooth salesman stuff that uh, it, it works really well on screen, I think, and it works well on stage. Well, there's so many moments where, you know, I love how you, we really get the inside view as to the actual process of it. Like there's uh, all the conversations you see with uh, Shelly on the phone where he's just making up everything you could see blatantly and he calls off screen to like a secretary that you know isn't there or anything to, to convince <laughs> right. these people. So you get kind of like this behind the scenes look at the the snake oil that these, these guys are pitching. Yeah, um, and I think it works well that way that it, it establishes an office space in a way that few films are really able to in that you have like this open area and as you were saying, the desks were mostly turned the same way um, and it tells yeah. you something about the characters. Yeah, well, I think what's uh, also kind of interesting is all the, the small pieces that kind of have in the environment here. Everything feels very desolate, you know, the, the denseness of the office, everything kind of populating it and all that just seems all kind of pointless and dour. And I love even just the fact down to the, the property they're selling. They're selling shit swampland in Florida. This is stuff that nobody wants. It's awful. They know it's bad property and they're selling it with a smile on their face, you know, knowing, right. you know, trying to rip these people off. Yeah, um, and it it's a, it's really getting to like the it's really trying to get inside someone's mind and sort of manipulate them to believe what you're trying to do. I, I don't think I could ever be a good salesperson because I just want to have like a real conversation with someone. Absolutely yeah. not. I mean, I couldn't, 
Well, for one thing, you have to be a really good liar, and I'm, yeah. I'm not a good liar. Um, no, you're not. No, not I, at all. You, you seem to mostly, well, you seem to tell the truth and be authentic about what you're saying. I try. I try to be, you know, I don't know how to lie necessarily, especially in a convincing manner, and that's the thing, is that almost nothing these guys say are true. These guys are they're all slime balls in their own way, even the most, uh, you know, kind of, you know, sincere characters like, you know, Kevin Spacey's Williamson character. Oh, I guess, geez, that's a, it's kind of ironic now that he's kind of the most wholesome character <laughs> of the film, right? It is, but that's just how much of a slime ball he is that he could pull off that and uh, portray that perfectly. That, um, yeah. You don't even have to buy into his distress. He could be playing uh, the House of Cards guy and be the most uh, conniving guy in the world. And you think, oh, I love him still. Well, I guess right, na- but, now uh, we know there's a there's an authenticity to the uh, the sliminess of the characters that Kevin Spacey plays. Right, uh, it's there's a little bit of darkness to it, but I don't think it devalues at all the great performances he was able to put on. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a shame as we talked about, you know, and not only us but many people recognize that Kevin Spacey is certainly one of the the greatest actors of this this generation. But you know, it's unfortunate now that his reputation has been very uh, sullied. You know, and while we can still enjoy and appreciate his performances, you know, it's important for us here to address how absolutely awful and disgusting a person he is. I know. Um, I was going to say he was the best in the other, but then you brought up the Game of Thrones guy. So. Yeah, maybe you said Ian McKellen playing Gandalf there as well. In Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> right, callback. But uh, I, I thought the... Kevin Spacey really held it together in this, that he is a central piece that the others move around. Yeah, well, he's he's kind of the, the big obstacle of the film, certainly. He's right. the wall that's keeping the, the salesman away from the, the titular Glengarry leads, these important, you know, this kind of MacGuffin, I guess you would call it as well. It's, it's this object mm-hmm. of desire that, you know, everyone desperately needs. And how, what would you say the Glengarry leads are? How are they different? Uh, from the other leads? Well, they're, you know, from the, whichever ones they've got. Uh, I can't remember the name of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, they're they're new, basically. You know, the difference is, if for, for those who didn't catch it in the film, essentially, is that the Glengarry leads are brand new. They're new people who are interested in properties, who have called and write about it. So they're they're fresh on the interest, whereas the leads that they are presented in the film instead are old, who've been sitting around for years, people who, you know, potentially had their names kind of plucked off of a mailing list. Like, they're going to be people who are not interested in buying, and you're going to have to jump through thousands of hoops to try and get them to, to buy this shit on, you know, worthy pro- uh, property. Yeah, you might get people that are in the market from these Glengarry Reed leads, and it is all about uh, real estate investing, which we haven't brought up yet, that it's a... Yeah, it's a real estate. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're trying to... They're trying to sell this Rio Rancho place, which doesn't even seem like a real thing. The way they sell it. Well, like I said, it's a you know it's it's shit Florida swamp land property. You know, effectively there, it's, right? It's gross. You know, unvaluable land that you're a sucker if you buy into. You know, people always talk about like a, you know, you don't want to invest in, what uh, whatever you call them. You know, the hotel things. Yeah. Yeah, like, um, what would you call it, timeshare? Timeshare, yeah, that's the word, I couldn't think of that. Yeah, so that's effectively, you know, the same kind of scam here, except it's, you know, like actual, you know, more uh, bad property, in a a bad place, worse than any other timeshare you might come across, in swamp land of all places. Yeah, I'm going to go vacation in the dirty, dingy swamp. 
But they they make it sound like they've uh, the customer might have won some kind of reward or that they have to, you know, they have to let go of this property now and here's their last chance. They they, have they pitch it all in these ev- incentives every way possible and they try and make it seem like it's an urgent matter and they're a fool if they don't capitalize on it and it's like in placing the audience in that perspective of of seeing the lie and the deceit of it all like kind of like pulling the curtain back and seeing that. It gives a real great perspective to how awful this is, and again, the whole, the whole film is populated by these desperate characters. They're they're awful, bad people, but at the same time, very kind of sympathetic. Except for maybe, um, you know, I don't find much sympathy for Ed Harris's character, Dave Moss. He's no. just a, a giant ass the whole film, yeah. but, but He's a very well but... acted. I guess that's uh, something that's important to acknowledge is that this film has God, what a cast this film has, and everyone. There are so giving... many. Yeah, everyone giving... So f- many great actors. Well, yeah, because, of what, we got uh, Kevin Spacey, we mentioned, mentioned um, Ed Harris as Dave Moss, Alan Arkin, um, you know, Alec Baldwin, obviously, in the famous part, Al Pacino, who's, like, the biggest actor of his generation, uh, Jonathan Price in a small role, and then Jack Lemmon, of all people, you know, super big star of the, the 50s and 60s here, kind of coming around for one final absolutely phenomenal performance of his career like this this is definitely my a lot favorite. of people say his best yeah oh, i would absolutely say that because he's he's given some real range to work with jack lemon's typically a comedy actor so him doing a much more serious part like this with uh it's also interesting to see like the the contrast and the amount of profanity he throws out in this film there is some comedy circling around it but i don't think that it is centered on his character the way it usually would be in a no, Jack Lemmon film. Jack Lemmon's usually a very kind of goofball character. Think about him in, yeah. like, you know, Some Like It Hot or, or whatnot. That's that's more of what Jack Lemmon was most of the time. So seeing him here, if, if that's your only context for him, it's a severe shift in expectation. And he plays it really neatly. He plays it straight, too, which is a, it's fun to see him do that. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because Jack Lemmon also has a reputation of being a kind of wholesome person most of the time like second to maybe henry fonda and his ability to play the good-hearted person so seeing him as a total skis here (laughs) is really great and again it it emphasizes his actual range that he didn't often get to show as an actor i still find this film very funny too i think it has comedy edges around it i think i think your favorite scene definitely has that you said has has a sense of humor to it kind of oh how would you describe that scene they're kind of talking in circles and uh Talking over each other with the same language. Yeah, so it's um, it's a scene where where Moss and um, Alan Arkin's character are uh, um, talking about potentially the, the idea of robbing you know the the office for the Glengarry leads and selling them off to a competitor, and they they keep talking about it like that. It's like it's just an idea. We're just kind of talking about it, not really thinking about it, talking. They, <laughs> they keep going back and forth that idea, like like kind of justifying the idea of having the conversation and trying to to essentially dismiss it as actually happening so they, they feel better about it, I guess. Yeah, I think they're having the conversation about having the conversation about doing it, which makes it very funny to me. Right, and it's all the while you've got the subtext of them like basically just saying it, but they're saying yeah, it right. by <laughs> not saying it. And then eventually they get to it, and he's like, did I say anything about a robbery? Mm-hmm. Right. And, th- and there's essentially the idea there is that they've, they've been talking about it the whole time by explicitly not talking about it or saying they're not talking about it and they're not guilty and it didn't happen as long as they don't say exactly what they mean 
Right. It's and it's a series, probably the best case of blatant double talk in the film. There, where it is good. Yeah, yeah. It, it is the most sales talk they get to. <laughs> it's fantastic. And the editing of it, I think, is really what helps sell that because it speeds up the I pace so. of that even more. Like the constant cutting back and often uh, overlapping over each other. Like I think that's kind of the funniest things about the conversation as well is that you can tell uh, Alan Arkin character Aaron Al. He can't even keep up with Dave Moss's thought train because he's just fueled by rage. <laughs> so he'll just occasionally like respond whatever the last thing that Moss said was, just as kind of like a confirmation. Just like, yep, yeah, I, I, I heard that. <laughs> there, are, there are like three times in the film where I see actors get kind of lost in the script, where they're, you know, they're not able to keep up with the sales speak or whatever. I think that's amusing that it's not. Uh, I mean, it's not uh, cut out that way. Uh, you feel the characters getting lost also. So well, I think it's okay it's, yeah. that they're being overwhelmed because that's like, I think it's that's very the, much a, that's the motive of like uh, this jargon, right? You well, want to overwhelm a, people. It's a very much a product of some of the characters, especially Aaron out there, you know, Alan Arkin's character, he's supposed to be the, the meekest of the bunch and very kind of just lost in this world. It's very clear. I, I think I remember reading a piece of trivia is that Alan Arkin wasn't sure about the character until he kind of made up a backstory for him that basically this guy was a, uh, he used to be a math teacher or something and he was felt very much like a failure kind of throughout his life and unable to accomplish things. So that's, that's very much what his situation is kind of here is that he's not, he's not cut out for this kind of cutthroat world. You know, he's a, he's too meek hmm. for it. Um, yeah, Arkin gives a really tremendous performance here. I think it might be the best he's done. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Certainly better, I think, than what he got like his Oscar recognition for. You know, he won an Oscar for Loomis Sunshine, which is a fantastic performance as yeah, well. But he's so much better here. Yeah. Oh, I mean, everyone's just better here. I think this is. You could argue this is the best performance of every actor in the film. Their whole career, they gave their best performance in this film. Yeah, I think. I think Baldwin topped out really early here. Yeah. Well, I think this was this was maybe the last great thing that he did for film. You know, uh, Alec Baldwin wanted to do. It'd be much more successful on television, but originally um, Baldwin was actually kind of a key player in organizing the film and getting it together. He originally wanted to play the part of Roma, and it was in his contract mm -hmm. that he would be doing that if they didn't get another actor to play the part. And otherwise, he'd default to the Blake role here. But you know, when they got Pacino, he he stepped down the Blake part. But arguably, it worked out better for him because that scene that Alec Baldwin's in that one singular like seven minute scene is the only thing people typically talk about for. For Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I think I knew that scene well ahead of when I knew of the movie. Is I that a, influential? Yeah, I have a friend who, uh, you know, got a degree in marketing in college, and he said that in one of the classes they played that scene to basically just say, "This is not how you you motivate people. This is not the proper <laughs> technique you use." Yeah, that seems cheesy. Um, mm. I, I, yeah, I just wouldn't want to go into a field after seeing that. Uh, man. Um, and then, yeah, Baldwin's tremendous. He's like a city guy who's coming in to help this uh, uh, failing uh, firm. Yeah, and it's a it's a tremendous you know performance, intimidating performance, and you know certainly a show stealer. I think it's also important to emphasize that that section is the one piece that's not in the play. That whole part isn't in it, uh, which is interesting because it it kind of sets up the whole conflict in more kind of concrete terms. You know, mm -hmm. establishing that everyone's under threat of losing their job if they don't close right. all of their, their deals Third there. place, you're fired. Yeah. That's good. And so that whole section is missing from the play. And uh, I guess I think uh, David Mamet added it into the film here, you know, for the audience who, you know, he felt like might need a little bit more of, of something to grip onto for a story, you know, something to compel. I actually think it makes the film uh, stronger because of that and having that kind of 
objective set up in mind, even though it's not inherently the entire focus of the film. The film is much more concerned with the character interactions and their their failings, you know, as they go along, while it's in the background moving forward in a plot. I think it does the most to explain the the context of their situation and um, and why they'd want to pursue these leads, especially. Right. Well, it creates a greater sense of urgency, certainly, and something that we can more. Uh, easily latch on to and relate to like you know all these guys are really in deep shit if they don't close as opposed to it just being their uh usual obligation to to close you know there's there's definitely a more impending sense of doom here the good news is you're fired yeah <laughs> and it's a great speech very quotable um you know you know put the coffee down and all that <laughs> i'm sure you'll insert a clip of it somewhere in here absolutely yeah, because it's, it's a memorable thing. But er, I think every part of the film is really memorable, and the lines are so crisp and uh, you know fantastic. It's it's sharp, sharp dialogue all throughout. So something I hadn't thought about were how how great these little sets are. They're they're amazing and they're strung together really well. Yeah, uh, I think uh, that's another facet of it that really elevates it from the stage. You know, everything is very well detailed and considered, and they and they expand from the the kind of uh you know humble centering around the office and they take a couple of detours out to actual homes and um you know like i think one of the cases like when he goes to one of the houses uh, shelley's character that in the stage originally took place just over a phone call but they decided to expand that to to kind of fill out the film you know and you, you get a sense that everything feels real in the film and everything feels authentic yeah i love the uh the first half of it. it's all in the rain right um, yeah and it, it feels good when they're sitting out in the car and you have that tension or, or when a guy's just on a toll phone. Mm-hmm. It feels uh, feels like a noir film we were talking about. Yeah, and uh, of course Rain, you know, that kind of setting is a is a huge aspect of noir. And it was, it was kind of a slow realization to kind of connect all the pieces together as we were watching that this is a <laughs> lot more noir-like than many people probably consider. And I think that that first half definitely sets it up really well with the heavy pouring rain the the kind of bleaks you know uh city kind of setting there the neon lights kind of add that effect to it too yeah halfway through i was like this is a noir film we should talk about this yeah um it does it definitely has that influence once it got to the part where they're setting up the crime um you have like a setup for a crime and that kind of expression just like gliding and some smooth jazz under it it's hard to separate them right uh, and the soundtrack definitely has that as well it's a very fantastic uh contemporary jazz score there it's not it's not a lot you know it's mostly a lot of the dialogue in the film but it pops up at key moments to really emphasize the mood of things and it's it's absolutely wonderful then the soundtrack is a primary reason why we're discussing it because you picked that up this last week right yep so so the soundtrack is one of those i really love i love these kind of you know jazzier kind of easily listening soundtracks i love stuff like this and i mentioned uh Taxi Driver in Chinatown definitely kind of get me in that mood. I love listening to them a lot. And Glengarry had been a CD that I'm looking for on my list for a while. And I popped into a store when I was down in the Portland area. saw it. It was like five bucks. I'm like, shit, I got to pick that up. And I did. And I showed you, you know, everyone here because we like to show off the things that we buy to make everyone else feel worse. And, <laughs> right. And you're like, shit, we um, should talk about that has, film. <laughs> it has a lot of uh, the breezy saxophone in it. Um, it's kind of embedded with feeling. I like the soundtrack a lot. A lot I love of, it. Uh, I think saxophone might be my favorite instrument just ever. I love I love yeah, saxophones. I love uh, smooth jazz and contemporary jazz especially. So this is this is a treat. 
Yes, absolutely is. You know, uh, the soundtrack's really great. I wish there was there was even more of it sometimes in the film. Like, just, just have yeah. more that I could listen to, you know. I could probably just in general listen to the film. Like, the dialogue also very, you know, it's kind of... I don't know. I, I guess the whole film, to me, kind of falls into this kind of chicken soupy category where it's a film I could easily return to and watch over and over again, like, with no problem. I'm, I'm excited to watch it again three, four, five times a year. Yeah, save it for a rainy day. I think Absolutely. It, I think it works. Yeah, like, and you could just, like, slump back into your, your couch there and just, like, soak everything in. It's relaxing to me, this kind of film. And, uh, I've only seen it twice before now, but uh, now I, uh, you know, I got on your account and now I can watch all your films. So. Yeah, well, because I sh- shared my ability uh, <laughs> to with you. Because you can't, it, uh, it's going to be hard for anyone else to kind of hunt this down right now. You know, it's one of yeah. those films that kind of comes in and out of availability to, to rent, which is unfortunate, but you could always... It hasn't been on Netflix for a couple of years now, so uh, what's the best way to get it? Uh, I mean, I might just suggest buying the Blu-ray. That's what I did, you know? Yeah. And it's really, you know, it's a good transfer. I mean, as I'm sure as you saw the HD there when you were streaming it, you know, it's a very you know high quality, looks beautiful still. And I guess that's another aspect of it that we forgot to touch on here was uh, cinematography. The cinematography in the film is surprisingly fantastic it is the way it's, the camera moves around objects is well, and between gotta, characters incredible what you got to consider is that there's um you know stage adaptations typically do not get a thoughtful camera you know in them no. and so to see it here in some really fantastic shots i, I think is phenomenal uh you know one of my favorites is that it kind of sets up i think i told you about this is that when the glengarry leads are first being locked away by williamson's character the camera fixes on him after cutting from Shelley's perspective, like we see a close-up <laughs> of Shelley looking, and you, yeah. you make the connection there that Shelley is watching him put away the Glengarry leads, lock them up, and it sets up that idea for him stealing them later on in the film, which is, again, another great thing, because you're kind of misdirected to lead that Moss is convincing Aranau to steal the leads for the majority of the first half of the film, so yeah. you, don't, you don't necessarily expect that it's going to be Shelley who's the one who's guilty. So there's your MacGuffin. Yeah, it's a, and, and there's a lot of other really good moments of cinematography. The camera moves, it moves throughout the office really well. Um, you know, what I'm surprised to find is that the director of this film is not as notable as you would think someone who pulled off a film like this would be. So what else has he done? Uh... James James Foley, most recently. He's, he's famous for directing the last two Fifty Shades films. Oh, wow. <laughs> Looks like he worked on House of Cards for a while with Kevin Spacey, too. Yeah, lots of uh, television stuff mostly here, you see. So, like, this film and yeah. then the, the Fifty Shades. That's a of shame. The... Yeah, because he seems, especially here, a lot more capable. That's a that's a long way to to kind of fall, it would seem. Although, would you say this is a writer's film primarily? Absolutely. I mean, this definitely screams David Mamet more than anything else. Um, I think it's more to his credit, possibly. That, uh, well, uh, certainly is. And working together with the actors, the I mean, I think this is a labor of love from everyone involved, and I don't want to discredit Foley in any way because no. again, he he certainly kind of you know has a big role in this. You know the the decisions to make all the the sets the way they are and the camera movements and everything. You know this is still very much a product of the director. I don't think James Foley had much of a hand in you know the actual design of the film. I think just mostly in the writing aspects of it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm surprised he didn't really accomplish anything really significant after this. Was uh, At Close Range a big deal? Uh, not that I know of. I've heard it mentioned okay. a couple times, but not. But 
you know, I don't think this was necessarily a breakout success for, you know, anyone here. The The film did not do well financially. It didn't even get its budget back. That's so disappointing because it's uh, maybe one of the better films of uh, 1992. I mean, probably just the 90s in general, honestly. Yeah, early 90s. Yeah, um, you know, um, I think it's it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, and, but it's not surprising to me that it didn't perform well at the box office. This is not the kind of thing you're going to go out and take your kids to or anything. I think this is one of our first that you like a lot better than I do. I mean, I, I love it, but uh, I'm not on your level with it yet. I, I have an absolute love affair with this movie. I think it's important to, to recognize as well that I have a very personal attachment to it because Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross was the film that very much inspired me to start writing about films because... I, you know, I had such an admiration for it and everything going on here, and when I try to find supplemental material to tell me more about it, there really isn't much in the way of analysis for Glenn Gary for some reason, even though it's certainly rife with material to, to look at and pick apart. So I was just like, well, if, if nobody else is going to, I guess I have to say something about it. i got to start the conversation <laughs> somehow. Right, and uh, films about writing, too. You can't get a better inspiration to start writing. Yeah, I think it I think it worked uh, kind of really well there. So that was the first piece I ever wrote, and I don't think it's very good now in, in retrospect, but you got to start somewhere, and I think it was yeah. a very good jumping-off point. I was very uh, grateful for that, and I'll always be grateful to the film for kind of giving me that inspiration. Um, as far as our podcasts go, we, we do like occasionally going toward a writer's film direction, like 12 Angry Men was the one I'd say. I think uh, Tolling Grimmens a very good comparison here because both it and Glengarry are all about a singular location and kind of uh, working out things between people, all very conversation-driven. And, and very much I, I consider it kind of in the same vein as that. And I, I, I have a little more personal affection for Glengarry, of course, but you know, Tolling yeah. Grimmens is kind of the staple of that kind of film. Yeah, I'd say if it, if it had a genre, it would be right under that one inside it. I think what's yeah. interesting is, I, I gotta check this film out still, I can't find it, but there was a TV movie adaptation of Tolonger Angry Men from <laughs> yeah. William Friedkin, uh, starring Jack Lemmon. Yeah, I've, I've heard about that. It could be interesting. Gotta find it eventually. It's hard to, to track down, though. The interesting thing about that, because that started as a TV uh, TV show, right? Tolonger Men? Yeah, it started within TV networks, and then oh, uh, Lou Matt was like a TV guy, and yeah. he brought it into film. All that. Yeah, so it originally, you know... Lou Man was a TV guy, and you know he, you know, brought was in brought in Twelve Angry Man was his first feature film, and so kind of coming back around to you know to making a, a TV remake of it from Freakin, who was very much a film film director. Could be interesting. Yeah, eventually maybe if we can discover it. I know the rental place near me has it, but it's only like on a VHS copy. Oh shit! Yeah. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I. I like Glenn Gary, Glenn Russ. Did it do anything for awards? I, I don't even remember. Uh, I got an Oscar nomination, I believe, for... Um, yeah, that's what I got. So first, uh, Al Pacino. He got an Oscar nomination in 1992. Two of them, actually, for both the leading and supporting actor. Okay. And so this year, he uh, for Glenn Gary, it was a supporting nomination for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. But he won that year in 1992 for leading for Ascent of a Woman. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's uh, his best, but it's up there. Yeah, I think Glengarry is definitely the stronger part of those two, but, uh, you know, I think Scent of the Woman yeah. is when they push more forward. Like, this is easily a performance, I think, up there with his stuff in, you know, the Godfather films. And it kind of is able to find that Lou Metness that he found in Dog Day Afternoon or whatever yeah. is a New York-y side. Although, though we had a conversation about it, and I'm pretty worked up that it's based in Chicago. So. 
Right. Uh, but I think it works kind of either way there. You know, they're similar cities in that vein, especially yeah. for the setting of the story. But I think what's interesting as well about Pacino is I know there was, like, probably five years ago, a revival of Glengarry, Glen Ross, done on stage. Was and, it? Yeah, and Pacino played the part of Shelley in that. Yeah, he switched characters. Yeah, because he was old That's enough to kind of fit the part there, which is interesting to, to think about. Yeah, uh, I, I like him in this film. I like just about everyone here, though. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Even, like we said, we got big-name actors like a Jonathan Price in a tiny role here. Yeah, that's a strange thing, and, and he's uh, he's all right in that little role, though. I think everyone kind of killed to be part of this project, and, uh, you know, the small cast like this, it, it feels like that kind of great stage production where you just, everyone comes together because they love the material so much, and they give it their all, and you can oh, see yeah, it this up is there. A, this is a craft project, and all the craft is on screen. It's great. Yeah, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. I, I love watching the film so much and you know i'm i'm excited to revisit it again i'm glad that you you had suggested us talking about this one so i'm like yeah i don't see anyone ever talking about glengarry glenn ross and it needs to and be talked they about. should they yes. should it's incredible and we don't uh, the 90s were pretty rough we we need to rescue some things yeah i think we all just we had a recent conversation all about like trying to find the best films in the 90s and it's it's not as easy <laughs> as like previous decades yeah, um, I mean, 92 was easy because I had Firewalk with me, but that's that's my own thing. I think 92 is actually kind of a, a better year in general because not only did you have that and this year, but Hard Boiled was also in 92. So yeah, 92 was good. Uh, there there were years, like, I forget, was it like 96 that was difficult? I think something like that. 96, I couldn't find shit. Then 97, of course, I, I'm swarmed with stuff, yeah. but I still end up with Con Air. <laughs> right, I don't know why. It feels like a meme pick there, but 97, uh, lots of great stuff. I love, I think my pick for 97 was, I love LA Confidential as well. Again, another kind of neo-noir film with Kevin Spacey again. Uh, Sounds you know. like a meme to me. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Have, you, have you not seen LA Confidential? LA Confidential. Oh, I have, yeah. yeah. It's absolutely it's fantastic. We'll talk about that too, I'm sure, someday. Yeah, um, we all went through our, our years of the 90s, and there's there's a lot of exceptional stuff, but there's a lot of dead years in there. Like We're doing a lot better right now. So. Yeah, I think uh, overall, you know, uh, 94, I know, was kind of another hard one for us, because a lot of the films that were praised at that time have not as aged as well. Stuff like Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction, people have sou right. soured on a little over the years. I think I just went with Shawshank, because I, what else do you do? Ah, sure, I don't even remember what I picked for 94. I went with Ed Wood, that's what I picked. Because okay. Ed, Ed Wood's really great, and still holds up. Then I have Sudden Death in 95. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> you just have weird choices. Yeah, oh, that's about the dad taking their kid to the Pittsburgh Penguin game, and I'm a diehard Penguins fan, so... Yeah. And it's John Clan Van Damme doing, like, all this martial arts shit against Penguins mascots. It's it's good. Is it? I, I know that about it. 10 out of 10. <laughs> Well, I guess next week we'll talk about that, huh? Uh, yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, in the meantime, everyone out here should try and you know find a way to watch Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, or at least put it on their watch list. Keep an eye out yeah, for it. Yeah, you'll find a way eventually. All right. Well, I guess until next week, Calvin, thanks for talking with me about this. All right. Coffee's for closers. The world And there are many to tread through shadow to the edge of night until 
Shall fade 